Welcome to Keanu Club. Like a cool breeze over the mountains, this is episode 32, Little Buddha, from 1993. I'm Mike Manzi. And I'm Joey Lewandowski, and with us today, we fought for Keanu's filmography because there's so much that he does that's religion-based and religion-affiliated, both in terms of The Matrix and also in terms of movies like this, Little Buddha. We thought we would bring in a religion expert, an actual theology professor, John Brooks. Hello, John. Hello. Well, teacher, not professor. Well, you know, we've upgraded you. (laughs) So, yeah, we uh, we decided that here's a little behind the scenes, a juicy goose for Keanu Club, was that when we were having friends sign up to be guests on episodes, no one at all, for the first, like, ten people, even requested The Matrix. And I was like, what is going on? Because The Matrix is my favorite movie, and if I was to ask this, I would be like, just give me The Matrix movies and that's it. Like, I don't care about anything else. And so... I think you either messaged us or I messaged you or something, and I was like, I'd like you to do these, and then we sort of expanded it, so you'll be back for Constantine and The Devil's Advocate, and also this movie, so all sorts of religion, all across the spectrum, both real and otherwise. (laughs) You're here for the long haul over the next, I don't know, like eight or nine months, I think, until we get to 2005 and Constantine, so buckle in. We are here for the religion aspect of Keanu Reeves. Yeah, there's quite a gap in the Keanu religion. I don't know if you knew this, but we're doing down the road. You're not involved because I don't want to make you, because you have three kids and we don't want you to have to deal with this, but there's a 13-hour Buddhism documentary mm. that we're going to watch. Mm. 13 hours or six hours? I think it's six hours, 13 parts. Okay, right, right, okay. Seven hours is just meditation. We have no idea what his level of involvement is, but we're going to watch it. It's a thing that you can buy on 13 VHS or one DVD. So, like, I don't know. We're going to get to that in about, you know, eight years or ten years of Keanu time. I'm very interested to see what that's all about, but we're, we're saving you the hassle of having to go through that. This movie, I sort of, we, we cover the Buddhism level with this movie. Right. All about him being Siddhartha, him being Little Buddha etc. So the first thing, I guess the, the most important thing, or the first thing that came to my mind in terms of this movie is that like the internet melted down last year when Cameron Crowe cast Emma Stone as Hawaiian. Uh, I knew you were going to bring this up. Yeah, Here, <laughs> Keanu Reeves is the founder of Buddhism. He's yeah. Siddhartha. And it's okay? Like, I don't, I don't understand. Well, it's 23 years ago. Yeah. So that sort of standard was a little bit different. You know, it's one thing to have a Cameron Crowe movie that already has some... I mean, nobody saw that movie anyway, so it's all like a big melt. I did. It was not good. Right, you've seen every movie. I did. uh, If it had been a good movie that anybody cared about, I think we'd still be talking about it to this day. and, And it would still be a controversy. But, you know, 23 years ago, to get a major Hollywood backed, wide release motion picture about Buddhism uh, that goes on for like three hours. <laughs> the other major stars are in it are Bridget Fonda and... And that's it. Then no. Chris Isaac. <laughs> Chris Isaac, <laughs> who at the time was like the guy from that song everybody likes right now. That was it. So you kind of, you kind of had to get at least some kind of a marquee name. What's kind of amazing about the Chris Isaac thing is that he has a very special place in our hearts because he has Wicked Game as in three different Cage Club movies. And so he won a Cage Club award when we did the end of the year awards for having the best song because Wicked Game is, I think, in, I want to say Wild at Heart. It's in, I don't know, it's in three movies. I can look it up. It's right around that time. Like it's these early 90s movies. And so they're just like, hey, we'll get you in this movie. But what bothers me more, because I don't care about Keanu playing Siddhartha. That's fine. It doesn't bother me. What bothers me is that we only have like 40 Bridget Fonda movies, and this is one of them. Yeah, she doesn't really have a whole lot to do here, does she? She is just in and out of this film pretty quickly. Yeah, she is, she is in the first about half hour and then reappears at the end. You could do something. You could do a Chris Club after you're done with Keanu Club. It would only take about, you know, five days. <laughs> no, thanks. I feel like this is one of the worst performances I've seen in a really long time, this Chris Isaac. There's a lot of bad performances in this movie. And yeah. partly because it doesn't actually really matter. It's, it's not a movie that's necessarily about dramatic performances. Every person in this movie who's an actor, which is very few, a lot of them are actual Tibetan Buddhists, but every single one of them is basically in the Keanu Reeves mode, which is really weird and interesting because, like, 
that Chris Isaac acts in this movie is like a typical Keanu Reeves performance. It's sort of like soft-spoken and not very emotive and sort of like line-reading in a, in a bland, kind of dead-eyed sort of way. It's weird. I don't know if that's like... I mean, I want to think it's intentional. It's so I don't, I don't think like, it is, I don't though. Think it is. <laughs> I know, it's not. I'm reading too far. I mean, maybe. Time. The director was foreign, right? There could be something right. lost in translation, and this movie also seems to be trying to go for almost like a dreamlike quality to a degree. And I think that is more what I'm saying. I mean, the way the movie shot, the, the Seattle scenes are all very washed out, which, I mean, maybe they're just trying to evoke Seattle. I don't know, because that is kind of what Seattle looks like about 80% of the year. But, you know, the, the sort of surreal, washed out, kind of dreamlike ethereal kind of state that the modern day moments are set in, I think is, is intentional. I think there is something to be said for like the way, I mean, Chris Isaac obviously is not like the world's greatest actor. I think the case could be made that Bridget Fonda isn't the world's greatest actress either. Of all the Fondas, she might be the least naturally gifted. Although um, she is delightful in It Could Happen to You, which is maybe my favorite Cage movie that I'd never heard of before The Cage Club. So I want her in rom-com mode. I don't want her in, like, Jodie Foster in Silence of the Lambs with given nothing to do in the back. Because she looks like Jodie Foster. Maybe that's just the early 90s look for women. Just, like, the weird glasses and, like, the sort of shoulder-length or, like, neck-length hair. Yeah, you're right. And there, it's definitely, like, she is... Playing a role that probably Jodie Foster was it was written for, but she had to back out for the last minute. Although I think that's probably true of like most of Bridget Fonda's roles. There's a time in the '90s where if you'd like mistaken the two of them, I don't think anybody would have blamed you for it. But the movie's directed by by Bernardo Bertolucci, a, a very very famous and accomplished director. Last Tango in Paris and yeah. that movie The Dreamers, where Ava Green and those two other guys are basically naked the whole time, just having sex with each other. <laughs> the Last Emperor was, yep. a, was a really big one. So yeah, I mean, while he is foreign, he's, he was hardly inexperienced with you know mainstream filmmaking or, or American filmmaking at the time. I don't think that's totally what's going on there. I think I think what's happening is that basically this is not a movie that is like trying to focus on great performances because because well, that it's would also like kill it. It's also barely a movie. Right. That's that's true too. <laughs> Yeah, I also feel like the stars in this are kind of distracting me a little bit. Like, you know, you would also, you would almost feel like the director has the power to cast whoever he would want and kind of create stars out of these performances or just lace it with actors that don't distract you. But maybe because, like, it's not just about reincarnation and Buddhism, but they also touch upon stuff like Free Tibet, you know, and... Right. <laughs> that could have made it a lot harder to get this project going, and so right. you had to get like Keanu in there, and you had to get Bridget Fonda, even if it's just this thankless role that she's in. You're right, it came out actually when the Free Tibet movement was probably at its most popular in the U.S. Popular is the wrong word for it, but, but when the, the issue of Tibet was in the popular conscience of the American people the most, was like the early 90s. So I do think we have to look at it in context in that way as well, that there is more going on here than maybe meets the eye to someone who just kind of would pick it up today and, and take a look at it. That there's there's historical relevance to when that movie came out and what it was what it was trying to say. But as Mike pointed out to me before I watched the movie, you could have just watched the Dalai Lama sketch from Mr. Show and sort of see <laughs> two hours. Yeah. Would this movie of. have been more or less distracting if you know, instead of Keanu Reeves, did you guys read who they also thought about for this role? I'm going to guess Daniel Day-Lewis right off the bat. <laughs> That's the cra <laughs> crazier, crazier than that. Dennis Hopper. Marlon Brando. Yeah, wow. Oh. So he would have been like 70, I guess? Maybe Bertolucci still thought Marlon Brando was in the 1950s. Like, he hadn't seen the movie since Streetcar Named Desire and was like, that guy, that kid's got moxie. Let's have him be Siddhartha. He's cast as the wrong Buddha. He needs to be the fat Buddha, not this thin Buddha under the tree. <laughs> well, well, Mike, let me give you a little bit of a lesson. That Buddha, yes, this is why you're here. This is why you're here. <laughs> the fat Buddha is not the Buddha. The fat Buddha is not Siddhartha. We shouldn't even be calling him the Buddha. Most people don't know that. I'm using this as a teachable moment. Well, that's why you're here. It's a teachable moment for all of us. <laughs> yeah, that guy actually, his name escapes me at the moment, but he's a very popular, uh, what's called a bodhisattva. Oh, Bodhi. Bodhi? Flashback. Point Bodhi? Break. <laughs> yeah, a bodhisattva is, is someone who is 
capable of achieving enlightenment entirely and thus leaving this mortal coil, but chooses to essentially to stay in reincarnation so as to serve mankind. So, you know, the, the Dalai Lama is a bodhisattva. So his previous incarnations are capable of achieving enlightenment, but if they do that, then they can never share their wisdom with the world. So it's, it's viewed as a sacrifice. And that fat laughing Buddha is not Buddha. It's a, it's a very famous, well-known bodhisattva in Chinese culture. Anyway, yeah, he, he would have been great for that. <laughs> but the surfing a 50-year wave, does that also achieve, you know, enlightenment? It does, it does. But no, it's, it's, it's really interesting because now that I'm thinking about it, I think Mike, Mike might be right. I mean, there might have been someone who was casting this thing and being like, oh, the Buddha, like, what's a funny-looking fat guy that we can cast? You know, and Brando at that point would have been perfect for it if that's what they were going for. But then hopefully someone came along and was like, no, we're, <laughs> we're dealing with a, a prince in his early 30s, <laughs> you know, like who's in shape. So let's not go with Marlon Brando. What other names, Joey, were they considering for the role? That's the only one I saw. The only thing, the other thing I saw was that Eric Stoltz was considered for the role of Dean, who I think is the precise (laughs) role. Yes. The most considered for actor of all time for roles he never got. Oh, Back to the Future, We Hardly Knew Ye. So I want to I, I say this. So I, I show this movie to my comparative religion classes every year because I really do think it's actually a very, very good depiction of the Buddha's path, Siddhartha's path, path to Buddhahood. And in terms of the Keanu Reeves thing, so like my kids mostly know who Keanu Reeves is. This generation right now, like the Matrix isn't really their thing. A lot of them have seen it, but certainly not as many as you would have expected like 10 years ago. But, you know, they've seen like, they seem like John Wick. They know who he is for the most part. And almost never does anybody even realize it's him. I had one kid once while watching the movie being like, that guy looks a lot like Keanu Reeves. And I'm like, that's actually Keanu Reeves. Because he's in full body makeup, kind of? Yeah. And like super yeah. thin and all actual face makeup and crazy hair. Nothing about him looks like him except for kind of his face a little bit. And then the way he talks is obviously Keanu Reeves. Oh, my father. Why have you hidden the truth from me so long? Why have you lied to me about the existence of suffering, sickness, poverty, old age, and death? If I have lied to you, Siddhartha, it has been because I love you. Your love has become a prison. How can I live here as I lived before, when so many are suffering outside? You never wanted to go outside. Father, Mm -hmm. I must find an answer to suffering. But it's crazy. Like, somehow, like, an amazing and a terrible transformation. Like, I can't tell if I'm in awe of it or stunned by it. It is stunning. It's It took me aback immediately because he's on the cover of the DVD, but that does not do no. justice to No, He looks like in motion, you know? <laughs> like, and I, too, just was conflicted in how to kind of respond to this because part of me is like he's really pulling this off, but the other part of me is he just shouldn't be doing it in the first place. So <laughs> there's like this weird push and pull emotionally while I'm watching this movie. I really enjoy the stories being told. I like the two parts of this film. I almost wish that they were their own films in and of themselves, that there was this film about Siddhartha and then this other film about finding the reincarnated Lama. But yeah, it it didn't ultimately in the end hinder my enjoyment of the movie. Like that's what's kind of stunning to me. It's like, I don't know if it's appropriate, but I still enjoyed the movie. Yeah, and I'm I'm not sure it would happen today. And I'm also not sure that, I mean... I know Keanu Reeves isn't isn't Indian, but he also I mean he is he's more let's say ethnic than other <laughs> Americans are. Yeah, he's uh, not American, right? Right. Uh, and, he's Canadian. He's Canadian, Hawaiian, or whatever. Uh, he was born in Lebanon, so that's kind of close, right? Lebanon. Yeah, I mean, yeah, he's not some guy. <laughs> he's not like he's not Bradley Cooper. You know what I mean? He's not like the most right. the most American possible looking person on earth. And, you know, he does have a strong connection with Buddhism, and, and you know, it's a personal it's a personal thing. I'm not sure if he's a practicing Buddhist, but I know he's into Buddhist study. And, and, I googled celebrity Buddhists, and there's a top ten list, and number one is, I don't know what the ranking is, but Tiger Woods is number one. But Keanu is on there because, no, I googled, is Keanu a Buddhist? And they said that, like, maybe... Like, they, right. they said that he practices it, but they're not sure, at least this one website wasn't sure whether or not he actually, like, considers himself a Buddhist or he's just, In other just, words, like, exactly spiritual. what I just said, Joey. Let's not, let's not I'm just confirming. I'm confirming what you said with some <laughs> random website. I'm backing up. 
random, some random internet site called you. Yeah. <laughs> that you probably put together yourself. <laughs> yes, I just, yeah, I just published that website just now. Uh, yeah, he definitely has, has spoken about Buddhism. He obviously is, his, his film roles in recent years, or at least since Little Buddha, there has been a sort of religious element to a lot of what he's done, as, as we've talked about earlier in the podcast. Again, I don't know that it would happen today that they would not hire a, an Indian actor to play Siddhartha, but I'm not, also not entirely sure that it would even be that big of a deal because, again, it's not Bradley Cooper, right? It's not someone who is just, like, so out of left field and clearly chosen to, like, try and get mass audiences to see this thing. And I think the movie probably would have been forgotten by now were it not for the fact that Keanu Reeves is in it. And I do think it's a... I mean, we should talk about whether or not we think it's a good movie. I, Mike has kind of given some ideas to what he thinks about that, but... <laughs> Just because I like it doesn't mean it's good. That's more what I meant, whether or not we actually like this movie. But, you know, I think it's the best telling of the Siddhartha story of anything that I've seen in any kind of mass media. And I appreciate that, and I'm not sure that it would be anything other than a relic in somebody's weird VHS collection had it not been for the presence of, of Keanu Reeves in it. I'm not as offended by it. I don't think it would cause the uproar of Emma Stone, like the whitest woman on earth, playing an Asian. Yeah, at least here they go the full distance with the makeup and everything. You know, it's not at least, you know, like Emma Stone, they didn't even attempt to make her look any different. And at least here, like, I feel like the effort was put in and it's paid off. He is in disguise here. It's not like he's walking around, like, yeah, with no and, tan or anything. It's not blackface, <laughs> right. It's like spray tan. It's not like, you know, it's it's what someone who would be hanging out in India for a while would look like if they were spending too much time out in the sun. It doesn't play to any stereotypes, I don't think. So there is that. Um, so, Joey, did you enjoy the movie? Is it the first time you'd seen it? Yeah. So I think I read Siddhartha by Herman Hess in school at some point. I don't really remember much. I remember the name and I remember sort of the basic story. I think that this is as entertaining and well-made of a Hollywood version of this as you can make. I don't know. I don't think it's a good movie because it just sort of is just like a bunch of things are happening. Like the kid is being sort of scouted for or like he they believe that he's the next reincarnation of the llama, right? And then he's learning about the history of Siddhartha as it's going. It's basic. It's weird that there's like two stories and also no story at the same time. And I feel like in terms of like showing it to a class, I think this is a cool thing where, you know, like you show it every year, it's something that is educational, but is also like interesting enough that people aren't going to be bored by it. Right. Right. I mean, this movie also made five million dollars in theaters, so I don't know. I mean, that's not nothing. I mean, that's like that's like more money than I thought this was going to make. So good for you, I guess. I guess that's a lot of people just saying like, "No, let's just see what Keanu's up to now." <laughs> yeah, it's you know, it's really funny because the assumption is always that you know the young people of today, the millennials, as they're called, this is the kind of movie that would just bore the hell out of them. And of all the, the films that we watch in any of my classes, this is always one of the most popular, which was really weird to me because even I am like, at some points, like, God, I'm falling asleep here. Maybe because I've seen it so many times. I don't know. But also because right. it's, you know, it's dreamy and sort of sleepy. In a yeah, lot it of, can love you. Yeah. It really can. And, and almost always, like, this is one that they, they stay awake for, and they're like, this is really interesting. And I'm like, that's, okay, cool. I'm not really quite sure why. I mean, I'm glad you think that, because that's why I'm showing it to you. But it's surprising to me. There's no explosions in it, you know what I mean? Like, there's no... There's a dancing elephant. Siddhartha doesn't go into bullet time and, like, you know, do you know, whatever. Like, <laughs> although there is that there is that scene, right, where the army of Maya fires their arrows at, at Siddhartha, and he turns them all into doves or butterflies or whatever it is, and it's like... Right out of the Matrix. It's almost, it's almost like a, an omen or a uh, foreshadowing to... Well, to what's also out of the Matrix is that he out. talks to a guy named the Architect. Like, this is basically a Matrix <laughs> That's true. That's true. Where he is the chosen one and he talks to the Architect. And there's an oracle. It's so weird. So what's interesting about this in terms of, I guess, entertainment value or Hollywood value, here's going to be the first time I publicly say... Mike and I have been working on a secret project that's going to be released in four days or within the next week. We're doing Shia LaBeouf. We're doing all Shia's movies. So, Mike, this podcast comes out November 4th. And so within the next week, we're going to drop the Shia LaBeouf podcast. But what's interesting to me, and the only reason I bring this up is because in terms of real life recording schedule, we just watched Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. And we were talking in there about how the CGI eight years later doesn't really translate well. But what's crazy is this movie from 93, the way that they, I guess, selectively do things 
almost ages better in a way than like Indiana Jones. The face transformation when he's talking to himself and he becomes that other guy, like a trickster guy, I guess, or just everything. Like, I don't know how, because there's, there, you've got to imagine there's like no CGI budget for this. So like whatever they did, as opposed to the $185 million crystal skull, whatever they did here somehow is more impressive decades later than something that was made in the last 10 years. And I just, I, I think that alone, like it's, it's impressive to be like, wait, when was this movie made? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're, you're right. And so a couple points about that. First of all, Spielberg and Lucas love using their movies as experiments to push CGI further. And like we, we should thank them for that in some way, because even when it fails, it always acts as a, a conduit to people doing it better. Which is why, like, some scenes in Jurassic Park, which looked amazing in 1993, are so obvious now. It all looks wrong. But had Spielberg not rolled the dice and, you know, tried to tried to make that happen, then we wouldn't have anywhere near the level of artistry that we have now in CGI. And I think Spielberg and Lucas both always just look at their own work as, you know, their projects first to do the things that they want to do and try the things they want to try. And, like, if people like it, great, most of the time... They spend billions of dollars on it anyway, whether or not they like it, uh, for whatever reason. So, yeah, when you have a movie like this that can can tinker with some of the... And, and CGI was really, really early in its infancy um, when this movie came out. It's the same year as Jurassic Park. It's not long after, like, The Abyss and Terminator 2 when the first movies to really use CGI. But a movie like this, where it just sort of is like, oh, cool, this will help me, you know, this we can use this technique to make this point, and just sort of seamlessly works its way in. Yeah, you're right. Uh, we shouldn't be dismissive of that. It's a pretty remarkable job that it stands up to to, to scrutiny. Even the, what, the the scene where Siddhartha is facing down the army of evil, it, it obviously doesn't look real, but it, it also isn't really kind of supposed to. It has that almost like Cecil B. DeMille look to it, right? That That's almost somewhat intentional. But I really do like that scene, the one that you bring up where his his face and the face of, of Maya become one. It is one of the essential teachings of Buddhism that the demons live in you. Like you are the demon, right? And when, when Siddhartha defeats the demon by staring it down and by refusing to submit to temptation, the realization, the revelation is that it's 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 all in his head. It's all it's all in him, right? The war is happening inside of himself. And the way that that is realized in that scene, I think that's that's my favorite part of the movie because it does it so well. And it's it's one of those things that when I when I try to explain it to my students in words, I'm <laughs> like, you know, I try to get really excited and into it. But it, it's it's one of those things that works very very well when you can actually just see it happening and when they can be like, oh, I get it. The bad guy is him, and his his defeat of the bad guy is the, the he is Agent Smith, right? That's exactly it too. Though, like, it's that's the same thing. You know, you can't one can't exist. Without, without the other, we will get there. We're going to talk about Matrix Revolutions forever, I think. We like, probably are, because that is my... It's not my favorite, but in, in terms of like the amount of stuff that is packed yeah. in there that I like <laughs> to extract, <laughs> is... My favorite definitely is Reloaded, and largely because of the architect scene. Whoa. Oh, man. This is... This is going to be crazy, because in case you're looking forward to... In case you're listening to Keanu Club waiting for The Matrix, I think The Matrix is the first one we're putting out in 2017. I think it's like January 6th or something. And then basically all of February is John with The Matrix Reloaded and The Matrix Revolutions and The Animatrix. So early next year, lots of John, lots of us, probably like eight-hour episodes. So just buckle in. And we're going to be talking a lot about, basically about Little Buddha, sort of. But like, eh, you know, bigger budget Hollywood movie. I almost literally can't wait. I love talking about those movies. Just not the first what I love, what I love about Keanu in this movie is, and I think that's the point of the Siddhartha character, is that like, he's so dumb. Right. <laughs> he just doesn't know anything. He's like, he's like, what, what are these men doing? He's like, well, they're, like, what, what do you mean old? Like, what is, what is old mean? It's just like, wait, how do you not know okay. anything about anything? Who are those men? Tell me, who are those men? They are men like the rest of us, my lord, who once sucked milk from their mother's breast. But why do they look like that? They are old, my lord. What do you mean, old? Old age destroys memory, beauty, and strength. In the end, it happens to us all, my lord. To everyone? To you and to me? It is better not to concern yourself with these things, my lord. What is the matter with those people? Why is she crying like that? She is in pain, my lord. She is very sick. Sick? What is that? No one reaches the moment of death without falling sick at least once. 
even kings? Absolutely, but that is crucial for the Siddhartha story. I mean, the movie illustrates it, but you really have to understand that one of the things that is essential to understanding how Siddhartha became Buddhist so quickly is that he lived this unorthodox life where he, his father literally tried to make him believe that there was no such thing as death and suffering and unhappiness by giving him everything he could possibly ever want all the time. And you're right, that's one, that's one thing that I've always thought too, is that that ability to play ignorant and dumb, <laughs> which is Keanu does so well, no, it really, it really does. Like, it's so important that that you be able to do that. And one of the things I love about Keanu Reeves is that he's so good at knowing what plays to his limited strengths in terms of the movie choices that he makes. Like, there are roles where people are like ignoramuses, and part of the whole storyline is that they don't really understand the world around them, right? And the, the Matrix, like and, Bill and Ted, and, and Bill and Ted, and Keanu Reeves is great at that, and like. Every other actor would have to try to seem like they're dumb. But if you look at the quintessential Keanu roles, even Speed, right? Which is the next movie. Like, we're watching these in orders. We go from Little Buddha to Speed, which is maybe crazier than going from whatever kid's movie that was to Bad Lieutenant. (laughs) Like, that's, like, as crazy of a jump for Cage as this is for Keanu. Right. Even in Much Ado About Nothing, have you just done that, or are you you doing We just did that. Yeah, loved it. That's a great movie, and him playing Don John is perfect, because Don John is written as this sinister but completely clueless character that is is just all the strengths of Keanu Reeves. It's like this, he's like slimy and charming and dumb, and like, you're like, cool, that's exactly who you are, this is perfect for you. And I think one of the reasons that Keanu Reeves has survived for so long is that he's never really, or very rarely, tried to push beyond that. The Devil's Advocate is another great example, right? A guy completely duped. <laughs> it's like, that's who you are. That's what you should be playing. We need people to play those roles. And there are actors who try to, who aren't self-aware enough to realize that they are limited to those roles and to pursue them. I think one of the things that gets Keanu Reeves off the hook, and people don't really make fun of him, they did for a little bit in the 90s, I think, people have accepted that this is, this is what he does, and, and, and he's good at it. What we've also found through Keanu Club with a lot of the movies that we hadn't heard of is that it seemed like for a while, and Mike, you can sort of back me up on this, directors are kind of casting him because that they thought that was all he could do. And so it's sort of like cemented this persona. And we've seen him do things a little bit differently, like sort of, you know, subverting it a little bit and sort of using some of the strengths but doing it in a different way. And he's good in those. But like, I think that this mentality that people have and kind of why we did Keanu Club, I think is because people see him as this one-note guy, and it's because he's really good at that, but also Hollywood just sort of decided, hey, this is who you're going to be, and he's just like, I don't know that he never like descended, but he's just like, all right, like right, I'm cool with that. He could probably be really good in very different things, like in, especially in like recent stuff, like in The Neon Demon, he's just like this like angry, powerful, like, asshole of like a of, you know a motel manager and like he's great in that and i feel like he has the ability to do other things but hollywood and also it seems like keanu decided like oh this is good like i can just own this like this can be my thing we talked about how they typecast him right out of bill and ted everything he was in after that like parenthood from then on they, it felt like they just wanted ted in their movie and it didn't exactly fit right then they attempted to sort of break his image a little bit along the way with a couple other weird roles that didn't quite work but it just seems like maybe at some point he accepted his abilities his limitations whatever you want to call them then he kind of found a way to fit into certain movies he's like yeah i'll do bill and ted too because ted is one of my strengths and that's a good opportunity to do that role and i'll do the matrix because you know neo is like sid arthur in a way like he's this blank slate like in a lot of ways yeah yeah but he has no understanding of what's really going on. So like, it's perfect for, for what he can do. So it's kind of cool that he's able to play those strengths and make good movies with that ability instead of not understanding where, where he fits into certain roles. Because it, it's like he and Hollywood both realize that not every movie star has to be Tom Cruise. Like, not every movie star has to be, like, this action hero who can do all of his own stunts. Like, sometimes you just need a guy who can be that handsome but naive and just, like, sort of in, like, not, like, in a bad way, but just, like, a simpleton that can sort of experience the world around him from a different perspective. Th- that can be the tentpole of a lot of major franchises, like, which we've seen. 
Yeah, I think that's right. And I, I think Mike's point is a really, really good one. The, the truth is kind of somewhere in between. That he, a certain amount of it is because of the way that Hollywood pushed him, that he's only this sort of type of character, or, you know, he's, he's Ted, and that's just who he's going to be. Combined with the fact that I think he does have a certain certain kind of self-awareness to like, yeah, you know, I do I do excel in certain roles. There's a reason I was so good at being Ted, even though, you know, that's kind of the opposite of who Keanu Reeves actually is. It's, he's, he's a much more introspective and quiet and kind of philosophical person. So somewhere in between where Ted and where Keanu live is where he, you know, does his best work. And I do think he's done a lot of really good work. I, and I, you know, I'm not even like jokingly. And I think you're right, Joey, when you bring up the Neon Demon where he is kind of pushing into using that persona that he's developed over time, but exploring its kind of dark side. I think Man of Tai Chi is another, you know, it's a very similar kind of role. He oh, which is, you'll also be on. I'm looking forward to that because I think it's an awesome movie, which he, I think, wrote and directed. But he it's, he explores a similar sort of thing. It, it's, it's a guy who is surviving based on his own sort of brute in, you know, will, but is also still kind of clueless and like, and almost a, a afraid of the outside world in some kind of way where he needs to be cloistered and he's this, you know, mob boss who needs protection around him all the time and, but has that sort of killer instinct at the same time. Yeah. So I, there are examples where we look at the movie and we say, Keanu Reeves should not have been in this movie. It ruined it. Those exist, right? Uh, you probably talked about some of them already. There's been more movies so far in, in the, the 30 that we've watched, I feel, that like Keanu's a bad fit and then like Cage. Like, Cage sort of was like, could sort of make anything work, but sometimes, Mike, we've said like, sometimes it just does not, it does not yeah. click. I think Dracula was a <laughs> Dracula. So Dracula's an interesting one too, because I think that who John Harker is, is exactly that Keanu Reeves role, but for some reason, and I think it has to do more with the fact that it's just, it's so tonally weird. It is the, weird. Yeah, the whole movie is is just, i really not quite sure. I mean, part of me really loves it, and as someone who's a really big fan of the original novel, I think a lot of what it does, it really captures what Stoker was trying to do. And I think, honestly, Keanu Reeves is a perfect John Harker, but... Because the movie is so just all over the place in terms of trying to figure out whether it's this like weird kind of almost like a parody in some ways, or if it's this dark gothic drama, or it's I, I don't really get that movie at all. I think that that's probably another weakness of Keanu Reeves that he he can't save a movie. You know what I mean? He's not that kind of actor. He can do it when it everything's working, but but not when it's all out of whack. And it, and I think Little Boot is a really good example of how that can work. I think the movie is better for having him in it. And and I, and I think his performance as Siddhartha is really genuine and heartfelt. And I can imagine a lot of actors, especially performing that last scene where he sits under the Bodhi tree and achieves enlightenment, and just looking really stupid, right? Like... Sitting, sitting there like that in meditation, he goes all in and takes it very seriously. And, and as someone who has studied Buddhism for a long time, I really admire that and respect it. Joey, I have to ask you. So, actually, both of you guys. So, you both read Siddhartha, or what was your what was your knowledge of that story coming into the? I don't know if I remembered anything coming into the movie. I rem- I know that the, I knew that Siddhartha became Buddha. I don't remember his journey. I don't remember anything about his father or anything like that. So I knew the basic path, but also, and I'll let Mike answer, but my perception of the movie coming in was not like, I don't know why, I guess because I didn't expect him to be Siddhartha, but I was sort of expecting him to like go to India and find the next Buddha. You know, I don't know what I was thinking, but then I was like, oh, he is Siddhartha all right, this is interesting. Even if I had the Siddhartha story perfectly in my mind, me preparing for the movie would not have prepared me at all. Yeah, and I hadn't read it since high school as well, and I knew, I had recalled the broad strokes, basically. I didn't remember the minute details specifically. And, I mean, I hadn't seen this movie before either, and so I thought it was just about finding the next llama. I was kind of caught blindsided by going back (laughs) and learning the Siddhartha stuff, and kind of that's my favorite stuff in the movie, and almost wish it was just that to a degree. I really enjoyed all that. What we haven't talked about is in the modern day, finding the new llama, and it turns out that there's three, there's three separate reincarnations, possibly. It's basically an hour of the movie, and like half an hour or more of that is just anchored by kids, like four or five-year-old kids. And they're not not great, but they're not terrible. Yeah, I Um, like that second kid a lot. He was cool. The, 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 The kid who steals the Game Boy. 
Which, by the way, is like the greatest like marker of when this movie takes place. An yep. original Game Boy and an Oakland A's hat. Yeah. You know it's 1993, guys. It has to be, right? It's either that or the summer of 2002 or whatever Moneyball is. Like, there's, there's only right. two times it's been okay to wear an A's hat in the last 25 years. Like, I think the blonde kid is maybe the worst of the three kids. Yeah. But not terrible. But what I love about him is his last name is Weezen Danger. <laughs> in real life, like, the actor's last name that. is... Wee's in danger. Like, oh no, Wee's in danger. Yeah. Because <laughs> he's the kind of kid that you look at and you're like, oh, this kid could very easily grow up to be like somebody we all know. Yeah. But instead he was like, I think he was in this and like one other movie or something. But then I saw his last name. I'm like, oh, this is wonderful. Maybe he is the reincarnation of something that's just tremendous. <laughs> that's not how it works. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, no, that's the coolness of your last name is not something that plays into, into reincarnation. Actually, in real life, I read this on IMDb that in 1996, so a couple years after this movie came out, they actually found, or they believe that they found, the next reincarnation of a llama in Seattle in this four-year-old boy, and they brought him to Nepal to be groomed as a spiritual leader. So this actually became kind of real. This I mean, okay, happens all the time, though. I, that's that's. That's the thing that I think. I think a lot of people watching this movie wouldn't get is like it's not a true story necessarily, but this really does depict it the way it happens. In terms of grooming a kid to be the next llama or the reincarnation, do they ever realize like, oh, we made a mistake? This isn't actually the kid. No, as far as I know, I don't think that's ever happened because the extent of the rights that need to be gone through first and the and the, the level of testing is extensive and intense. I don't think they declare anybody a reincarnation of a llama until such a time that they are absolutely sure. So it's uh, a very thorough vetting process. It's an incredibly thorough vetting process. It involves like being able to identify personal objects that belonged to the previous incarnation of said llama. Oh, like when this kid puts his elbow in that bowl or whatever? Correct. And he's right. just like, like right. oh, four-year-olds don't do that. Like This must be the next incarnation. The Dalai Lama, the current Dalai Lama, was very, very young when he was named Dalai Lama. And he, like... There's a scene, actually, in Seven Years in Tibet that shows this. I, I think it's that. It's either that or Kundu, and I can't remember which one. Both of which are about the current Dalai Lama. There's this room full of just incredible, enormous amounts of treasure and things that any kid would find really, really cool. And the one thing that he gravitated towards in this... And it, I mean, we're talking, like, you know, the warehouse in Indiana Jones. Like, it's, like, like so much stuff, right? The idea that you would go towards this one thing is, is next to impossible. But I believe it was like a it was like a hairbrush or a comb. It was like some really mundane object that he just went right towards. And we're talking like when he was like three years old and was just absolutely like enamored by. And, and I think that's when they knew, okay, this is definitely him. That's usually how they do it. So the thing with the bowl is actually that's that's um that's a pretty common part of the the testing process is how you know that you have a relationship with, with that llama. And also the idea that it can be more than one person is, is not unheard of as well. So, so what's the split that they say? It's the spirit and the voice and the mind or something? Right, yeah. yeah. I think that's that's basically like something they just sort of came up with on their own. But Although, I, you know, I, I don't think it's totally out of the realm of possibility that that sort of thing Yeah, what's, what's weird about this movie and just sort of, I guess, these types of movies in general is that, like, I figure most of it is authentic to the, right. the process. But they could also easily, like, weave things in like that. I'm like, oh, yeah, like, that, that makes sense. And then they're just like, oh, we just made that up because it's a movie. That's one of the things I want to kind of ask you guys, is, and what I'm always curious about people who are very outsiders to Buddhism and the tradition, is A, if you learned anything, and B, how much you trusted what you saw was actual information that you should take for granted is part of Buddhist tradition or not. And so I'm glad you brought that up, because I, <laughs> I wanted to actually specifically ask you if you ever felt like, you know... If I were to go talk to somebody about Buddhism after seeing this movie, would I sound like a complete idiot? Because they're like, oh, you just watched <laughs> Little Buddha. And so now you think that whatever, like, you could possibly be three people. So, no, it's interesting that you had that thought. So if I can put you at some ease. No, it's pretty good. It was created with the direct involvement of a lot of actual Tibetan Buddhist monks and practitioners. And as far as I've seen, there's really nothing in it that is even remotely kind of Hollywoodized or fictionalized for the purpose of good storytelling. The most unlikely thing, like the most surprising thing, is the fact that the karma of the previous llama was divided into three. But again, it's not at all out of the realm of possibility when it comes to... But it, it completely falls in line with what Buddhist doctrine suggests uh, is possible. So it's an interesting spin on it. it like it, it also 
it's probably something most people who are even sort of passingly familiar with Buddhism probably wouldn't know. So I, I think it's cool that they did that, and not just in a kind of twist-ending storytelling kind of way. You know, it does actually teach you um, something something of interest. So, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up, because I really wanted to know if you had that experience. I don't know if Mike felt the same way watching it as to whether or not he could trust it. <laughs> I can tell you, you can. Yeah, it, it does a good job. Yeah, for the most part, I kind of assumed that they were treating all of the Siddhartha and the Buddhism and all that was trying to be as true and respectful as possible. I did want to, I was going to ask kind of about, like Joey did, about the, the three chosen instead of the one. That's the one thing that, if anything, kind of felt like they may have, you know, made up. But it's nice to know they didn't. And But it's also cool to know that they kind of incorporated everything they could about it, you know, because I wasn't aware that it could be three people. I thought it had to be the one person. And for the most part, the stuff to me that felt Hollywood is the relationship between the kids' parents. Was like, I was not really understanding the drama there and why they were putting all that in. And to me, that felt unnecessary. And I almost would have liked them to use that time to focus more on aspects of Buddhism. Because, yeah, I haven't really thought about Buddhism in a long time, but it makes me kind of want to go learn more about it. You know, it, it does feel a little bit like edutainment to a degree. <laughs> but, like, and it looks amazing and it's, yeah. you know, really well done. And even though I can't stand Chris Isaacs. He doesn't ruin the movie for me. Like, he really is he's, he's more out of place than Keanu. Oh, actually, I have a separate question for you, John. At the very end, when Bridget Fonda's like struggling to open that box, and the kid comes over, he's like, "Here's how you open it." And like, this is the llama's kata, and then this is the this is the llama, and like he's just like rubbing his finger all in the guy's ashes. Like, is that is that cool? Like, is that okay? It is cool. So. I'm really glad you brought that up too. The body is meaningless, right? So so one of the things that Buddhism teaches is that we should not be, I mean, the essential teaching of Buddhism is is to try and pry yourself away from, you know, material desire. Uh, and that includes your own body. So, you know, most Buddhists, for instance, like Tibetan Buddhists will have a, a tradition of uh, if a, a monk died uh, among their ranks in the monastery, the most common thing to do is just to feed the body to the vultures. Oh. So, because the vultures need to eat, and they don't have much around there to eat, and so they figure, like, well, why waste, you know, what, like, why waste this meat that is just meat? Because that this is not the person. The person is, is something else. So, yeah, that actually, that's another one of those things that is telling and is authentic to the tradition that is, you might miss it, or you might notice it, or you might think about it, or you might not, and, and they're not trying to, like, you know, pound it into your head. Yeah, but the idea that, like, ashes are just ashes, right? This, this is not who this person really was or is, and so therefore, like, you know, spread it around the lake or don't or whatever. It really is up to the people who are currently living. And in fact, that's part of the reason why, before that scene, he sees Lama Doji, right? The, the kids see Lama Doji still living within the monastery, sort of off the balcony there, right, in that scene, as part of a way of sort of emphasizing that idea of the body is not the person. So that's a very kind of Western Christian idea that somehow like the body is relevant and we should save all the bodies in like some part of town with like all these stone monuments to them and stuff, which is weird and doesn't really make any sense. And it's it just a very kind of specific cultural thing that we kind of take for granted, but it does not translate to that tradition at all. So yeah, it's cool. He's not definitely <laughs> Long cool. Well, because I think it also, it, like you know, when they have the reincarnation come in three things, like not like one of them's not the body. Like they're all things that are sort of more ethereal, right? Like the the mind and the voice and the spirit. Like it's not like, the the physical, actual, the flesh or whatever doesn't matter. It's just this one guy separated into three little flesh pods that are all going to die at some point too. Correct. The only other thing I wanted to point out about this movie, and it really has nothing to do with Keanu Club, is that when the monks get to Seattle or wherever they're going to. And I just love the fact that they're just driving the car. Like, I love sort of fish out of water. But what I also love is that they're listening to Iris Dement's Let the Mystery Be. Yeah. And that's the theme song for season two of The Leftovers. And I was just like, oh, my God. Like, this is just like the ultimate religion song. I just want to use this in everything. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great song. I love that song. Yeah, It's such a cool, like, as soon as that song started, I was just like, oh, I need to go watch all of the leftovers again right now. There's a great cover of that song by uh, David Byrne and Natalie Merchant that did live that is available on some B-side somewhere. But, uh, yeah, it's really good. No, I love that song, and I love that scene. I love that they're playing that song in that scene. Because it's a very sort of, it's kind of a new-age hippie sort of song, right? It's about, like, agnosticism, like, whatever, like, who cares, let's 
let's not get obsessed with doctrine and like let's let the mystery be and some people talk about heaven and you know it's it's, it's got those it's kind of flower child mentality to it but it also like it works pretty well not just for that scene but also for kind of the theme of the movie and also one of the doctrine of buddhism that not knowing is it's okay you don't have to know the answers to everything that is not the most pressing thing to worry about where life is concerned but yeah it's it's a really really good scene great song cue for that particular moment oh the one other thing that i knew not about this movie but sort of i guess about buddhism coming into the movie is when they're making the sand art and yes. like I knew oh why God. they do it that yeah. way because they did the same thing on House of Cards except on House of Cards it was a very heavy-handed metaphor about the inner turmoil that Robin Wright was going through that Claire was going through and like she sees it and like all of a sudden it's just gone and she's like oh like my I need to divorce spoiler I need to divorce Frank that's right around the time I started I started hating that show was like right around that heavy-handed metaphor well the whole show is heavy-handed metaphors it's just a matter of like how how much you can get behind them that and the, like the, the Frank is literally the devil element that that yeah. metaphor was like I'm like Oh man, that is the biggest shark anybody's ever jumped. But yeah, the Mandela, right. That's Mandelas are one of the coolest and most difficult things for the Western culture to understand. The idea that you would, I mean, the intricacy and the amount of practice and training it takes to be able to create one of those is, is mind-blowing. Because every single variance in color is just a different grain of sand. There's no ink, right? You have to actually place sand in very, very specific places uh, and it's all geometrically perfect and incredibly elaborate. So you also have to correspond to all these different parts of the Mandela and all that stuff. And it takes sometimes weeks to create, sometimes longer. They can be as small as like a standard card table or they can be like a city block. You know, they, they range in size. But the one thing they all have in common is that once they're around for a few days, someone comes along and sweeps it away. And that's it, right? It's just gone forever. Which is so frustrating and beautiful. <laughs> it is. It is. Which is exactly... It, but it is the most perfect metaphor for what Buddhism is about. Which is that, is that like, you could sweep it away, or you could wait for time to sweep it away. But at some point, this thing is not going to exist anymore. And as soon as you become attached to it, where you're like, I worked so hard on this thing... I want it to still be there just because I worked so hard on it. When you realize the contradiction in saying that, that's when you need to take the broom and just get rid of it. Because you have become essentially chained to this thing, right? It's the same thing that people go through when they like won't throw out something that they've had for 20 years just because they've had it for 20 years, right? Because they're like, what if I need it one day? Or like, what if I lose the memory of the thing that this reminds me of? It's like, look, you're not going to. That's ridiculous. Throw it away, right? <laughs> you're moving. Put it in the trash. Be done with it. And we have a really, really hard time with that. And so you can see the value of training yourself to do it in the hardest possible way. Doing something that's next to impossible to create and then deliberately destroying it because you don't want it to become your master. Um, oh, man. It really is. I mean, it's a fascinating process. And, and, I, and I recommend anybody listening, go to YouTube and watch one of the time-lapse creations of a mandala. And you'll, you'll get the sense of like just how incredibly beautiful and difficult it is. And then... Consider the fact that someone just comes along with a dustpan and was like, it's gone forever. Sorry. Yep. Uh, glad you took pictures of it with your iPhone because <laughs> that's all that is left. <laughs> just digital. The uh, impermanence of life. Right. That's exactly it, too. It's Impermanence is the essence of Buddhism. It is everything revolves around the idea that nothing is permanent. And you have to confront that. And they do it in the most astonishing way possible, which most of us would just... I, yeah, it's frustrating to think about. I hate thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> because I'm a Westerner and I have those values of like, no, I want my stuff to live through time and, and survive. But, you know, we it's all going to go away at some point, so you might as well. We can't throw away Teddy's booties. Like, what if what if we have a baby in 20 years? Right, exactly. Yeah, the, totally. the booties got to stay around. Yeah, we've gotten much better at that. It's, it's, it's astonishing how much better you'll be at it when you have way more stuff than your house can fit because you have three kids. So you get much better at throwing stuff away when that's the case because um, you just don't have room. <laughs> Forced impermanence. Yeah, exactly. I think we're off to a rocking start in our religion subset of the Keanu so Club too. podcast. It's been, it's been really fun. And... You used to do the same, like, whether or not you should skip the movie or watch the movie or something. That was... I think we... I feel like we stopped doing that for Keanu, because I think there were too many that you... Like, it was okay to skip, so we're just like, eh, you know. The frustrating thing, John, was that... We talked about this so many times in the podcast, but, like, there was, like, an eight-year stretch in Keanu's life, pretty much from, like, the mid-80s to just, like, a couple years ago, where he was in high school, and they were all basically the same movie. It was, like, all the same movie. I'm like crazy. he did. He did literally. What was it like? 1986. I think he did eight movies, and they were all like sort of variations. 
variations on the same thing. A lot of them are about, like, yeah, teen suicide or... They're all, like, a very special topic. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, this is what happens when you go to prom. This is what happens when, like, your friend kills himself. This is what happens when you drink underage. This is what happens when your dad's an alcoholic. It's just like, oh, okay. But I feel like all of them, like, this is one... I don't know that I'm ever going to... I mean, I might see this again. I don't know, but I feel like this is one that you, you, you sort of should watch because it's, as I think Mike said before, it's edutainment. Because, like, in the wrong hands, this could be so dry and just so boring. But in this Bernardo Bertolucci, in his hands, it turns out to be really kind of... For sort of how little is happening on screen a lot of the time, like, the time goes by really quickly. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, and actually, it's a good movie, and I recommend people watch it. If you have any interest in, in Buddhism, and actually, there are several movies that I could recommend, but this, I think, in terms of the accessibility of it, which is actually, Mike, what I like about the whole like Seattle subplot, is that it does modernize some of these ideas and brings it to... Not today, but in 1993. But you know what I mean. You know, there a movie like Hamdun is fantastic. It's a Martin Scorsese movie, but it's really, really, really hard to digest. And if you think this movie is slow, <laughs> you would not like Hamdun or Seven Years in Tibet, which is historically pretty good. But I, I think it, I don't think it quite captures a lot of the essences of Buddhism the way that this does. So it's a good Keanu movie, and it's also it's also a good Buddhism movie. I don't know if it's a great work of film you know but it, it's certainly what's your phrase joey worth your time is that is that worth your, your time worth your time yes. it's worth your time the only thing that i think it's missing is that i wish that the monks took a stop off at like a nirvana concert circa <laughs> 92 93 i'm just like hey is this guy no this guy's not the llama all right <laughs> well when bridget fonda showed up i wondered if this is what happened to her character from singles and <laughs> oh i like it <laughs> okay so the, the next assignment is to make sure that we put on the internet the mind-blowing fan theory that little buddha is a sequel of singles you're um, not gonna believe what this yes. one guy thinks about bridget fonda <laughs> you will never watch little buddha the same way again <laughs> you may never watch little buddha again ever <laughs> This will change the way you watch singles forever. That's an awesome... I hadn't thought about the Seattle connection between Little Buddha and singles, actually. Or even Nirvana and Little... It's all this, It's all one big circle of life. One big harmonious... One big mosh pit. One big mosh pit of Nirvana <laughs> slash Samsara. Yeah. We didn't talk about Samsara. We'll talk about that later. we got a lot of religion to talk about when we get to We had so much so. religion to talk about and so many hours to do it in. Well, thank you, John. You will be back later this year for... What's well, basically the same movie in The Devil's Advocate. Like, I mean, oh, like, no. the tone oh, is the yes. same. <laughs> and every, everything between those two movies is the same. So I'm sure we'll just continue this discussion, like this thoughtful discussion of Buddhism, when Al Pacino's got his hand up Mona Lisa's skirt. Wait till I bust out the Gnostic Gospels for the two oh, major yes. sequels. Oh, yeah. For all things Keanu Club, you can go to cageclub.me or facebook.com slash cageclub. You can see the movies that we've done, see what's coming up next, learn all about everything that's not religion. We're adding the religion subset to cageclub.me over these next coming months. So if you're interested in anything else about these guys or the other podcasts on the network, go to those two places and enjoy. I'm Joey Lewandowski. And I'm Mike Manzi. And that was our religion expert, John Brooks. And we'll see you next time on Keanu Club. Poverty, old age, and death.